Happy Friday, folks. Senior Editor Mackenzie DeLulo here, and welcome back to the Texans Weekly Roundup podcast. This week, the team discusses Governor Greg Abbott appointing a full-time border security czar, Abbott's support for education savings accounts as a school choice proposal, one Texas lawmaker's goal to sunset the Texas Sunset Commission, lawsuits against a federal ATF rule that would criminalize possession of pistol braces in some states, a possible settlement in the lawsuit of whistleblowers against Attorney General Ken Paxton, a criticism of public education lobbyists by school choice advocates over inconsistency in their agenda, a new bill requiring companies to label products containing human fetal tissue, the Texas oil and gas industry's recovery last year from its fall in 2021, a provocative drag event in North Texas where children were in the audience, and an East Texas judge whose murder spree shocked a small town 10 years ago. As always, if you have questions for our team, DM us on Twitter or email us at editor at the Texan.news. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Well, howdy, everyone. It's Mackenzie DeLulo here. I'm here with Hayden, Cameron, Matt, and Brad. My gosh, um, we are all recording remotely today and trying our best to report the news as we can with this storm that came in this week, particularly in central Texas. Austin's been hit pretty hard. Brad, you've reported on a lot of it, and we definitely are going to get into that today. But um, we'll see how we do with our connection problems. For some reason, when all of this uh, service goes down, or excuse me, when all this power goes down, service <laughs> does as well. So we'll see how we do today recording remotely. Um, At least I'm not writing articles on my phone from my car this time. <laughs> that heralds us back to two years ago, eh? Yep. Yep. That was a time. Someone's going to call me Canadian because I just said, A. Hey, I just know I'm going to get an email. Um, well, you're wearing true. a Seattle Seahawks hat, so basically Canada. That's right. Basically, I, I, unreal. You would be surprised at how many people from Seattle have never been to Canada. That's an aside. But Hayden, we're going to go ahead and start with you so we can get into the meat here before our service dies or something goes wrong. I'm just trying to preemptively say that that will not happen. But Hayden, we're starting with you. Governor Abbott announced a new border security official here in Texas. Tell us about his new border security czar. What a name. I'll talk fast since apparently this podcast is doomed. (laughs) (laughs) The other day, Abbott appointed a new position in his, I won't say cabinet, but in uh, in his office to oversee border security. He's calling it his border security czar. He said it is a full-time job to tackle illegal immigration in Texas. So he appointed Mike Banks. Mr. Banks is a retired Border Patrol official. He retired just a few weeks ago after 23 years in United States Border Patrol. He will be stationed in the Westlaco area, but will report directly to Governor Abbott's office. Banks said, quote, I look forward to continuing to work with our stakeholders, our law enforcement partners in the community, and leveraging everything we can do to further protect our great state of Texas and the United States, end quote. And at this news conference, when Abbott announced that he would appoint Banks as border security czar, he referenced the letter that he hand-delivered to President Biden when the president was in El Paso just a few weeks ago for a border visit. So Mr. Banks, uh, I believe, will begin right away, and he will be the point person for border security policy in Texas. 
Talk to us about the tangible impact that this could have on the border crisis. At our session kickoff event, as many of you listening know, we had a border security and immigration policy panel. It was an excellent discussion. I was thankful for all of our panelists. And a couple of them had some thoughts on Operation Lone Star that I found interesting. Uh, Representative Terry Canales said that he believed that we are not getting a return on investment for the $4 billion spent. And others say that this is more of a political spectacle for Abbott to show that he's tough on the border, but it isn't really reducing illegal immigration or having a real impact on um, a real impact on reducing illegal crossings, or at least as Canales put it, it's not having the impact that we're paying for. Um, Abbott is openly keeping his name on the table for a possible 2024 presidential run. He recently said he hasn't ruled it in yet, but he is certainly considering it. Uh, So there are uh, political undertones to this, but this is just a latest, the latest in a series of actions. It's hard to believe that it's been almost two years since Operation Lone Star began, uh, but it has been um, a considerable amount of time and we have an election right around the corner. Uh, But uh, Republicans have repeatedly pointed to the escalating numbers of apprehensions and arrests and other encounters along the southern border under the Biden administration. So this is Abbott's uh, latest step to uh, use state resources to address that. You saying an election is right around the corner gave my heart palpitations. We just started the session and we're already looking ahead to the election. But that's how these cycles work, right? It's just the nature of the game. And we saw reports that Nikki Haley is already about to announce her presidential run. So it's just it's incredible. There's almost no gap now between election cycles. One cycle ends and you have another one starting already. So it is interesting. I'm just not ready for it. I just want the session to go on with us being able to focus on that entirely. But that's a wish list item. Who knows if that'll be the case. Um, Hayden, thanks so much. Brad, let's pivot to the governor here. He made a very big announcement this week, kind of giving a hint as to what the legislature might be tackling, uh, particularly what they might be tackling that the governor would sign and approve. What did he have to say? So after a year of hyping up school choice reform and the potential push behind it in the legislature, Abbott finally discussed his preferred method. And that method is through education savings accounts. It's an increasingly popular option over the old preferred medium of vouchers. They're similar, but not exactly the same. Uh, Governor Abbott said during the event in Corpus Christi, uh, parents should not be held helpless. They should be able to choose the education option that is best for their child. The way to do that is with education savings accounts. We've seen them work in other states and we've seen them work in the state of Texas. Also, what he's referring to there um, is kind of a, a much smaller pilot program that they uh, that the governor instituted with uh, COVID emergency orders to establish some sort of ESA program for students with disabilities. And so I think it's, it's either $1,200 or $1,500 per enrollee in that uh, these parents can access that money and use that for whether it's tutors or uh, tuition or a number of different education costs uh, for their children specifically that are that have uh, special needs. But the governor wants to expand that to every student in the state. 
What's the difference, technically speaking, between these ESAs, these education savings accounts, and vouchers, which we hear a yeah. lot about in policy discussions? So, non-substantively, the difference is that ESAs are not as politically charged of a term. Vouchers are kind of a third rail, uh, a political third rail of a term, um, at least as it has developed over the last few years. Uh, when you hear the critics of school choice talk, they always um, talk very uh, condemningly of, quote, vouchers. And so um, this is that that itself, the messaging side, there's the difference. But on the the two functions themselves, where vouchers are typically checks given to parents from the state for specifically tuition purposes, often exchanged just between the the state and the accredited institution. ESAs are accounts funded with state dollars with which parents may direct toward any number of educational purposes, including tuition, but could be used for school materials, um, you know, laptops or tutors, things like that. It's much more broad in scope. Um, and then the other big thing is that while ESJ ESAs are generally more flexible in purpose, they do not allow families to simply pocket the dollars, depending on the kind of voucher program you have, uh, whether the parents actually get a hold of the physical check that they then use for tuition. Uh, ESA's parents never have. Um, it, it, they can't just use that to uh, supplement their own income, basically. Talk to us about any legislation that's been filed specifically relating to this preferred item that the governor's talked about. Yeah, so Senator Mays Middleton has filed uh, Senate Bill 176. Uh, that's, at least as far as I'm aware, the only ESA bill we've seen so far. We might see one, considering with how much oomph uh, the governor and lieutenant governor are putting behind this. We might see the the blessed version put in the Senate's um, uh, priority slate of bills. But uh, this bill by Middleton create would create these things called parental empowerment accounts essentially esas these accounts may be used for a wide range of purposes such as tuition class materials tutor fees or devices such as laptops and calculators uh, middleton said after the news broke of abbott's statement he said thank you to governor abbott for fighting to pass educational choice for every child in texas parents matter education savings accounts will allow money to follow every child and allow parents to decide which educational options work best for their children's unique needs we're going to see a big fight on this in the legislature we've talked about this recently um you know the, the lieutenant governor addressed concerns about how this would affect the funding for rural school districts. Uh, that's generally the biggest criticism of school choice reform, although not the only one. But the, um, the state officials seem to be pretty, um, at least the top two, Lieutenant Governor and Governor, seem to be quite really behind this issue and will, uh, I think, push it until the very end. I'm excited to see how it all ends up and what the final bill on the table, whether it's confirmed and passed both chambers or not, but the last bill that folks kind of uh, settle on what that ends up being. Thank you, Brad, for your coverage. You also published a piece this week on Texas's sunset review process. Give us a preview of that piece. 
So at an oil and gas industry meeting last summer, Representative Tom Craddock, the former House Speaker, who's been in office since the 1970s, said we need to, quote, sunset the Sunset Commission. So that kind of got me. I heard that and I was like, oh, story idea. There we go. Um, So I looked into it and this piece lays out the history of the sunset process uh, and the commission that oversees it. It has been in operation since 1977 when the legislature established it in response to events that eroded public trust in government, such as the Vietnam War and Watergate and the fiscal turmoil that we saw happen in the 70s. So they established this and every agency or board that is sanctioned by the state must be reviewed and renewed every 12 years. It's a lengthy process, usually takes um, the review usually takes up to and sometimes more than a year to complete. Um, And so the agency, the Sunset Advisory Advisory Commission, which runs this, is uh, quite large and they deal with uh, list t- fielding comments, reviewing the agencies themselves, taking comment from these agencies, um, self analysis. And so then they basically present the findings to the legislature, and the legislature can either uh, renew it outright, make changes, things like that. So, uh, but when it gets to that point, we see a lot of. <laughs> A lot of things happen as, as usually occurs, like especially on the House floor. Uh, legislators have broad um, discretion to, you know, amend bills, these included. And so we see a lot of legislation kind of um, attached to these sunset renewal, bill, renewal bills, you know, like barnacles to a ship. They, uh, they hang on their previously dead legislation also um, is attached to these. And that, along with the actual rejection rate or sunset rate of these agencies, is kind of what what uh, encompasses the criticism by Craddock and others like him. Representative Briscoe Kane is one that's criticized it, but generally, the criticism is of what the sunset sunset process has become, not that it exists in the first place. That's generally something that everyone likes about Texas. Um, it, it is a pretty unique process and it's a lot more robust than many other states. And it for a long time was unique. No other state has anything like this. So I get into a lot more details in the piece. Recommend you if, it, if that interests you, check it out. Um, uh, another, another person that's criticized this was former speaker Joe Strauss. And I mentioned that in there. So it's an odd array of, of critics on this, but regardless I don't think we'll see any actual legislation to sunset the sunset process occur. <laughs> uh, it hasn't picked up steam previously, even with a speaker behind some sort of reform. But it's an interesting situation nonetheless, especially because of how how much it deals with during a session. Absolutely. Definitely worth checking out. Thank you, Bradley. Matt, we are coming to you. The federal government issued an administrative rule that outlaws millions of firearms currently held privately. Uh, Tell us about this sudden change in federal law and why gun owners are not happy. That's right, Mackenzie. On Tuesday, the ATF, which is the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, Uh, published an administrative rule that includes firearms with pistol braces under their 
interpretation of the statutory definition of a short-barreled rifle, which is what is known as an NFA weapon or the National Firearms Act. Now, NFA weapons, which include machine guns and silencers, uh, require the payment of a $200 tax when they're purchased, an extensive background check that can sometimes take over a year for the federal government to perform before uh, you are allowed to take possession of an NFA weapon that you're trying to purchase. Uh, now, gun owners have one of two options. Register their firearms uh right now uh, by them directly by themselves, which limits who they can allow to shoot the gun. Uh, or if the gun was placed in a trust before Tuesday, they could place it in a trust, which allows you to add trustees and allow more people to shoot the gun. Um, the, in a, the ATF also says they're waiving the $200 tax uh, for a 120-day period uh, since the publication of the rule and allowing gun owners to register their guns within that period of time. Uh, and then after that, they will enforce the law as a um, uh, un unregistered firearm, which is a felony. Uh, now, this is kind of an interesting scenario in, in gun laws and gun rights issues in that since most federal gun control laws came into play in the 30s and in the 70s, um, you have an entire new era of firearms designs that have, have kind of fallen between the cracks, as some gun rights activists describe, of what the current statutory definition says. A classic example is the very commonly held AR-15 rifle which if you put a barrel on it that's under 16 inches long, it becomes an NFA weapon. But if you remove the stock and put one of these pistol braces on it, the federal government for the past 10 years has recognized it to be a pistol, which does not fall under the NFA. Uh, under pressure from the Biden administration, the ATF reversed its years long stance and decided to issue this administrative rule uh, stretching the application of the statutory definition uh, to these firearms. Um, we spoke with uh, a gun store owner and Second Amendment rights activist, Michael Cargill, who recently prevailed before a full panel of the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, striking down a similar rule that was imposed by the Trump administration uh, banning bump stock devices. Uh, and if you compare that case with this case, there were so many similar circumstances. The ATF for many years had said that the device was completely legitimate. And then under public pressure, political pressure, the administrations tried to apply the statutory definition to uh, the uh, uh, to apply to the uh, weapon. Um, and the full panel of the Fifth Circuit in that instance said that that, that wasn't allowable and, and they struck the rule down, thusly legalizing bump stocks within the jurisdiction of the 
of the Fifth Circuit. Now, Cargill says that the precedent he said in his case, Cargill v. Garland, uh, is great precedence for several lawsuits that have been filed, and I'm hearing that more are on the way, on behalf of two Texas residents, uh, one from Amarillo and that was filed in the Northern District of Texas, and one filed by attorneys with the Texas Public Policy Foundation on behalf of, of a resident in the uh, Eastern Federal District of Texas, and they will be seeking to have the rule blocked, uh, citing essentially the same similar arguments that Cargill prevailed on. Um, while these cases have not been referred to judges yet, eventually they will, and we'll be waiting to see whether or not the uh, judges block uh, the this new law or how long it will take for gun owners, if they do, to prevail in courts. Spicy stuff, Matthew, as always. Thanks for reporting on that as our Second Amendment reporter. We appreciate it. Hayden, we are going to come to you. This is uh, fascinating. It's been a decade since the beginning of a series of very shocking murders in Kaufman, Texas. Tell us about the murders of Mike, of, excuse me, Mark Hossie. I think I said that correctly. Mike McClelland and Cynthia McClelland. This case is so shocking because it sounds like something that might happen in a third world country or in some war-torn part of the planet. But this happened between Dallas and Tyler, which made it feel really close to home because I remember seeing all the media coverage about this when it first happened. I grew up in the Dallas area and in East Texas. So it was a lot of the geography of this case is familiar to me. But on January 31st, 2013, a former judge who had lost his law license after he was convicted of theft and lost his office as justice of the peace, gunned down the prosecutor who participated in his prosecution in broad daylight right outside the county courthouse. Mark Hassie was brutally murdered um, as he was on his way to work on that Monday morning. And he, as I mentioned, was one of the people who had prosecuted Eric Williams for stealing about $600 worth of computer monitors from the county. Eric Williams had, uh, had been a member of the Texas State Guard. He had grown up as a Boy Scout. He had been in Kaufman for years. This was his, his fiefdom almost. It, obviously, he wasn't in charge of the whole county, but he had a lot of influence there. He had an arsenal of weapons and he had made comments that had disturbed people. There are so many details about this case that I wasn't able to get to in the piece, but uh, suffice to say, he had originally been elected in 2010. He was a Republican who uh, defeated a Democratic incumbent for justice of the peace. And, uh, he murdered Mark Hassey on January 31 of 2013. Two months later, he barged into the home of District Attorney Mark McClelland and his wife, Cynthia, and he uh, brutally murdered them with an AR-15. And uh, Mike McClelland and Eric Williams also had a long history as political opponents. They strongly disliked one another. And Mike McClelland was, of course, in charge of the prosecution of Williams for that theft from the courthouse. And it's, it's hard to imagine that a case that began 
uh, with a, a theft case worth about a few hundred dollars ended with three people uh, being senselessly murdered. Uh, but that that's the nature of this case. And um, it's it's unfathomable. It's hard to wrap wrap my head around uh, the loss that that community suffered. Yeah, I think the takeaway there is just like you were saying, the response uh, for this, you know, six hundred dollars, several hundred dollars worth of uh, of theft being prosecuted, um, being the murder of three people is just unfathomable and absolutely unbelievable. Um, you spoke with a best-selling true crime and mystery series author. I lost my mind when you told me this. So cool. What did Catherine Casey have to say as she reflected on this case? Well, like you said, Catherine Casey has many bestsellers. She's written about um, more true crime cases that I can count on both hands um, in Texas specifically. She's from the Houston area and it was a privilege to speak with her about this. When I originally messaged her, she messaged me back and said, has it really been 10 years? Because it, it doesn't seem like that long ago. Uh, she talked about her memory of uh, being the only person to interview Eric Williams on death row. Spoiler alert, he was sentenced to death for killing the, those three people. Um, but she told me that she did, that Williams did not strike her as someone who uh, would kill three people and sitting down with him at, at uh, death on uh, when she visited him on death row, he, he seemed like a normal person having a conversation, cracking jokes. And then it would, it would, she would remember what he had done. And it's hard to believe that somebody who can do something that horrible can seem so normal when you're talking to them face to face. Eric Williams' wife is also in prison because she participated in planning the the murders. She drove the getaway car after Hassey's murder, and she was also present with Williams in the car when he killed the McClellans. So she is serving a 40-year prison sentence for her crimes as well. But one of the parts of my conversation with Casey that was interesting to me is I asked her if there were any lessons that the average person could take away from it. And it's always hard in cases like this, because you don't want anything to sound like victim blaming or any, any kind of shifting of responsibility because Casey emphasized this over and over. There is no excuse or justification for what Eric Williams did to those three people. And she made that abundantly clear to me. This case, however, is a cautionary tale of what can happen when uh, law enforcement becomes personal. And that's what, that's what Casey imparted to me in our conversation. This town, she described it as an incubator of all of these uh, vendettas and, and resentments between these two guys. And uh, I'm still working my way through her book about this case, but uh, dating back to McClellan's first uh, run for district attorney back in 2005, eight years before he was killed, um, Eric Williams had written an editorial in the newspaper opposing his run for his first run for DA, and he had lost by 60 or 70 votes. So they, they went way back. Everybody involved with, uh, were Republicans, uh, but they still had a long political history of being in opposition to one another. And um, when Williams stole these computer monitors, it became uh, McClellan's responsibility to prosecute him. And uh, he did his job and Williams uh, chose to commit capital murder 
um, and now he will likely pay for it with his life. And as you just said, you know, a, a judge sentenced Williams to death in 2014. What is the status of his appeals? This case has been all over the court system. In 2018, his lawyers made sweeping arguments against capital punishment, uh, like most death penalty defendants do. They tried to get the Supreme Court to intervene in this case, but they declined. And the Texas Supreme Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has declined his appeals multiple times. And it, at this point, it would take something extraordinary to spare his life uh, from the Texas death chamber. So his case has, he's been on death row for almost a decade now. And uh, there are very few issues left in the case to debate. So I don't see an appeal being successful and his time is probably running out. To say the least. And uh, folks, as Hayden said, this is a very fascinating story. And I would very much encourage you to go to the Texan and read the full story um, that Hayden wrote this week. And um, just unbelievably fascinating. And like he said, it sounds like something that would happen somewhere besides Kaufman, Texas. It does not sound like something that would take place in small rural town. Um, just murder in broad daylight for... Um, a much smaller crime committed beforehand. So fascinatingly tragic. Definitely go and check out those uh, that story and even that book by Catherine Casey. Hayden, thanks for your coverage. Um, Matt, let's go back to school choice here. It's quickly rising up to be one of the big issues this session. And supporters of school choice have some interesting observations and things to say about the legislative agendas of those who oppose school choice. We have both sides going at it rhetorically and factually. What is this contradiction rhetorically and factually that seems to be in play here? That's right, McKenzie. And um, it's going to be a hard act following up on a story after listening to Hayden's uh, remarkable tale. Uh, I'm still sitting on the edge of my seat after listening to that. But <laughs> this was an interesting issue to research as well. Uh, major opponents to school choice this session include Raise Your Hand Texas, which is a lobby organization. Um, and they highlight in their legislative agenda uh, that their opposition to school choice is due to several reasons, including a lack of fiscal and academic transparency that private schools have, uh, essentially saying that they don't measure up to the same levels as public schools. Conversely, they have another major legislative agenda item that calls for reforms or alterations to those current academic accountability mechanisms that public schools are presently subject to, namely the STAR test and uh, similar types of, of testing that are requirement, requirements for graduation, etc., um, now, supporters of school choice, including the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is a conservative think tank based in Austin, uh, with their expert on education, Mandy Drogan, that we spoke with, described these agendas as being in conflict with each other and pushed back on the overall narrative, saying that school choice policy they will support contains both fiscal and academic accountability metrics. Uh, specifically on the, the contradiction that seems to be in play here is that in a nutshell, uh, they oppose school choice because their, 
they don't have the same testing standards that the public schools use, yet they are advocating against those present academic testing standards for themselves. Now, we reached out to Raise Your Hand Texas uh, for comment regarding this story, uh, and um, they did not respond to our, our questions. Uh, but we did talk at length with uh, uh, Drogan over this issue, and uh, we highlighted a lot of the more in-depth details and exactly what is being said and go into a little bit of detail on exactly what these uh, uh tests are that K through 12 education is, is subject to and what uh, some of these uh, advocates are wanting to transition to. All that can be checked out on our story on the Texan.news. Awesome, Matt. And we'll continue to talk to opponents of school choice and advocates for school choice so that we can you know, provide best coverage we can as the session moves forward and these policy proposals begin to take shape. So, Matt, thanks for this beginning uh, story. We appreciate your coverage. Cameron, we're coming to you week two of the pod. We're so excited that you are once again joining us. You wrote a story this week that Senator Bob Hall, Republican from North Texas, has recently filed a new bill that would require the labeling of products that include human fetal tissue. Talk to us about the details of this bill. Yes. So uh, this is Senate Bill 314. It would require the labeling of all food, medical and cosmetic products that may include human fetal tissue. So what's interesting about this is the FDA has actually made statements before they actually uh, had an emailed statement to the Associated Press where they said they were not aware of any company ever putting fetal cells into food products. So that that's the FDA stating that. But we know that cosmetic products have used uh, fetal tissue in their products before. There was a controversial case by a company called Neocutis that they put out a statement admitting that they had used cultured skin cells um, of an aborted fetus in some of their products, along with, um, we know pharmaceutical research and development commonly use uh, the fetal cell lines to develop and produce a variety of their pharmaceutical products. So this will be interesting to see how, uh, how this goes along. Absolutely. Thanks for your coverage of that issue. And certainly something we'll follow throughout the rest of the legislative session. Um, and like you, I think you mentioned in this story, Oklahoma has passed something or tried to pass something very similar. So we've seen this before um, just in different states, but I don't believe it passed there. I don't believe it even made it out of committee in Oklahoma. Is that true? That's right. They proposed something all the way back in uh, 2012. So as you can see, this has been going on for years and other states have tried to pass similar things. Oklahoma didn't get out of committee. So we'll see how far it gets here in Texas. There you go. Cameron, thanks so much for your coverage. We appreciate it. Yep. Brad, a Texas Oil and Gas Association released a report on how the industry fared in 2022. Give us an overview. So the Texas oil and gas industry added 24,000 jobs over last year and it brought in about $320 billion in gross regional product. Like it's the same thing as gross domestic product only for a specific region, the amount of, of dollars coming in. Um, looking back at the previous year's GRPs, the one this year really 
well, the, the collection of the three really illustrates the economic distru- disruption caused by the pandemic and the government mandated shutdowns. That GRP total in 2020 was $278 billion. The next year in 2021, it dropped to $200 billion. And then now it has since, uh, like last year, jumped up to $320 billion. And so that is uh, quite a bit of volatility over three years. The overall employment total in the industry is currently at about 347000 with an average annual wage of $140,000. It's a pretty high average wage uh, for, for an industry. But um, the largest portion of the added jobs came in support services for oil and gas operations. That would seem to indicate that operations are obviously growing. Um in all the the ancillary type of 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 jobs and operations that assist that need to ramp up as well and adjust for that growth. And similarly, the production of oil and natural gas is on the rise. As of October, it was on pace to eclipse its production levels from 2021 in both oil and natural gas. So overall, uh the oil and gas industry had a pretty good year, especially compared with the previous year that featured a lot of turmoil. Absolutely. So what does this mean going forward? So while challenges still lie ahead, the oil and gas industry and particularly Texas's oil and gas industry has rebounded quite well from the depths of the pandemic. Then it saw oil futures prices plunge toward negative $40 Per barrel, we saw that in April 2020. That was quite shocking. Um, but overall, like the, we've seen gasoline prices increase. Of course, a lot goes into that. But uh, at root, it is uh, tied to oil and gas production. Um, we that's the the most easily understandable for the average person. But uh, we saw a lot of companies, at least during the latter half of 2020 and maybe this, the first part of 2021, either shutter operations or struggle to, to grow operations. And then since then, last year especially, we've seen the opposite happen, them really featuring a lot of growth. So overall, it seems pointed in the right direction. But when you add in feelings about supply chain disruption, uh, federal government regulation, there's still some potential bumps in the road toward uh, you know, a, a huge influx of investment in the industry. Thank you, Bradley, for breaking it down for us. Cameron, we are coming back to you. You wrote a story on a very provocative drag event in North Texas for this week. What was different about this event compared to others that have happened in the state? So this event uh, was a bit different just because of the social media attention that it got. So uh, we saw this event was being advertised for 18 and over, 21 and over, but uh, it was actually attended by the, a Blaze TV host, Sarah Gonzalez, who, who had video of the event that showed minors in attendance at this drag event. And um, what caught fire on social media about the video is a lot of the language was very explicit. Um, you could see the children in the video grabbing money off the ground and running around. So it, it, it was very plain to see that this was 
a event that was with families, had children. So th- there wasn't any cover up or hiding what was going on. And um, what we also saw as well um, was it was being guarded as it, as it was being reported. It was being guarded by uh, armed Antifa members. So this is, again, something we're continuing to see across Texas. <clears throat> We've seen similar events. I know um, the Drag Your Kids to Pride event that happened in Dallas was uh, quite a shocking thing and caught fire again on social media and had a lot of comments and actually uh, prompted a uh, state investigation. And so we, we've seen comments from legislators and public official, officials saying they want to do something um, about these drag events with children present that continue to occur here in Texas. And uh, we've actually seen <coughs> Nate uh, Schatzline uh, out of Fort Worth. He actually uh, recently introduced a House bill that would uh, update the definition of what is a sexually oriented business to include drag performances. So you can see uh, there's some steps being taken to um, help protect children um, around these types of events. Well, thank you for your coverage there, Cameron. We appreciate it very, very much. Hayden, we are coming to you. The attorney general is reportedly negotiating with those who accused him of firing them for reporting their suspicions of abuse of office. It's been an ongoing battle for years now. Could this be the beginning of the end of Paxton's legal troubles? I didn't realize how dramatic that question sounded until you read it back to me. (laughs) I would just be the beginning of the end, Hayden, the beginning of the end. The apocalypse is nigh. No, Um, (laughs) I I don't think Paxton will ever not be ensnared in some kind of legal controversy. So I'm going to say no on that count. But one of the whistleblowers in this reported mediation agreement that is in the works is not participating because he does not want any type of settlement apparently. And this was first reported by the Dallas morning news. I believe these are publicly available court documents, but the Texas Supreme court is not beholden to what is being negotiated and they don't have to obey what the parties say anyway. Uh, But he still has the securities fraud indictment that has never gone to trial. And that's separate from this To give everyone a a brief rundown on what these whistleblower allegations say, Uh, a few years ago, uh, he was accused by many employees of using the office of the attorney general to benefit a friend of his who was a real estate developer named uh, Nate Paul. It was also said, uh, alleged that Paxton had an affair with a woman who was later hired uh, by one of Nate Paul's companies. Uh, So... That allegation hangs over this case, but four of these so-called whistleblowers were fired by the office. Paxton says it was because of things that you fire employees for and that it's not illegal for him to dismiss employees to who he believes are not uh, performing their jobs well. But these employees say that he's he fired them out of retaliation, and this case has made it all the way to the Texas Supreme Court, which is where these settlement nego- negotiations are taking place. Uh, but like I said, only three of the four whistleblowers, as they call themselves, are in uh, negotiation with Paxton's legal team. 
So I doubt that it will be the end of Paxton's legal troubles by a long shot. Certainly. And even to your point at the beginning, saying this is likely not the end, he is the state's lawyer. So he is, in fact, involved in a lot of these kind of legal battles. Uh, anyways, this is of a totally different nature than the things he, as a, an official in Texas, engages himself in. But he's in the news. He's sued all the time. This is just part of uh, part of the deal. This is very different, though. And so to your point, I don't think he'll be out of any any sort of legal heat anytime soon because of this very personal matter or because of his, the nature of his job. So those are two different things that we're talking about here. What has been the focal point of Paxton's service as attorney general? Well, you're right that there's a major difference between Paxton being sued or indicted personally and Paxton doing his job as the chief law enforcement officer of Texas and acting as the government's attorney. And uh, the reason that this has a nexus to his official role is there are those who say that uh, all, all of this is a political hit job uh, because of uh, his, his political stances. And he has sued the Biden administration nearly a dozen times over illegal immigration. That has been one of his main projects, especially since January of 2021. He's also done things like uh, gone after uh, companies that are responsible for the opioid crisis. and. Like Cameron just talked about, he's gone after some of what he calls woke guidelines for uh, requiring, um, as proponents would frame it, equitable or equal treatment of uh, uh, those of of all sexual orientations and, and gender identities. So he has made social issues and border security uh, prominent parts of his administration. And some say that there are uh, politics entangled in this. Supporters of Paxton specifically uh, believe that he is being uh, pursued uh, relentlessly because of his uh, political stances. Uh, meanwhile, uh, many of these, his personal legal troubles uh, remain unresolved. Two very different things. Thanks for your coverage and breaking that down for us, Hayden. Brad, we're going to come to you and talk about uh, the elephant in the room for us here in Austin and those throughout Central Texas. Uh, this weather that we've been having and all across the state, there have been outages and you know freezing weather. Um, but I think the vast majority of this particular storm hit Central Texas pretty hard. The Hill Country and, and the surrounding counties and areas. Um, talk to us a little bit about what we're hearing about what happened, why, what, what caused this specifically and what we can expect going forward. Uh, let me put the cart before the horse a bit and say, first off, this is not a power grid issue. Um, <laughs> despite what I am seeing some people on on the Twitters say, uh, the ERCOT power grid has been has had a, a surplus of power this entire week. And that is in spite of about 10,000 megawatts of wind generation icing up as the public utility commission chairman said out in West Texas. So uh, that said this week we saw a, a cold blast come through Texas and it caused power outages. And currently there are uh, about 400,000 um, uh, actually now it has dropped to about 350,000 um, across Texas customers out of power. And if you look at the map, um, it, it generally goes from about San Antonio, uh, northeasterly up towards the edge of the DFW Metroplex, um, all the way up to the very north part of Texas. And central Texas is, has been hit hardest with outages. 
Um, Austin energy is getting a lot of, a lot of the attention and rightfully so because, um, of the 350,000, uh, customers currently out of power, 150 are within Austin energy. And, uh, the second most, uh, in terms of raw number is Encore, uh, Encore services about 3.8 million compared with Austin energy, about half a million. So the percentage breakdown there is just astounding. Um, additionally, something I just saw a little bit ago, Milam County actually has the highest percentage of outage, but over more than half of customers in Milam County are out of power. So on Thursday, um, two days after state officials, including Greg Abbott, held a, a press conference on the inclement weather and emergency conditions, city of Austin officials held a press conference and uh, they discussed why this is happening all due to downed power lines, localized issues, power lines down from, um, either ice accumulating on them, uh, that itself or tree branches accum- with ice accumulation, then breaking and falling on power lines. And so that is the, the main cause of this. Uh, again, no issue with the power grid. There's plenty of generation on online. And uh, we just saw, well, actually, um, at first, Austin Energy uh, estimated that these outages would only last 12 to 24 hours. And that was on Tuesday. Uh, then this morning, uh, when I was at their press conference, they stressed that uh, they expected power for everyone or almost everyone to be restored by Friday at 6 p.m. And now this afternoon, they released a tweet that said, actually, we don't know when this is going to be resolved. So the goalposts are moving. I'm sure they are learning things that they didn't know before about the situation. Uh, but we keep seeing the estimated time of restoration or point of restoration change. And that is quite frankly, pissing a lot of people off. Um, and so uh, that's totally understandable. Um, but there's a long road to go on this. Uh, it is not even close to as bad as the 2021 blackouts. Um here in Austin, we are now back above freezing. So everything is starting to melt. Road conditions are at least when I went out earlier today, totally fine. Um, but there has been a lot of, a lot of issues caused by something that probably shouldn't cause a lot of problems. Um, but we see, you know, power lines coming down and, and there is no way getting around that. So, um, Crews are working overtime to try and fix that. And uh, <laughs> crews are working overtime to to get this through over the line. Uh, they've actually, Austin Energy has contracted with um, surrounding utilities to bring in their own uh, crews. But uh, it's, we don't know when, when the power is going to come on. And there's going to be a lot of fallout, I think, from this. But we shall see where it goes. Fun for the new mayor, Kirk Watson, yeah. to be introduced to some uh, big responsibilities, <laughs> yeah. right? As he's entering his and, new office. A note about that. He was at the presser and he started off saying that the city's and Austin Energy's communication during this has been unacceptable. 
He said that the presser they held today was held two days too late. Um, and so he was quite upset uh, about, about what has gone on, especially in terms of communication. Uh, but I'm not sure if that snowball is going to roll down the hill. We'll see. Who knows? Okay, well, we're going to move on to the tweetery section here and wrap this up at a punctual time here. And Hayden, since you're making me laugh on this podcast by sending things in the chat, I am making you go first. What is your tweetery from this week? I'm sorry. I'm I'm distracting <laughs> everyone while they're trying to do their jobs. <laughs> um, I saw a very helpful Twitter thread about the Notes app and iPhone. I did not know that you can scan documents with the Notes app and upload them to your phone as a PDF document. So thank you to Marius Hawken on Twitter for pointing that out in a very helpful thread about Notes features and other iPhone uh, bells and whistles that I did not know about. I think you can actually from your notes app also like sign documents like there's a ton of features of things you can do i know because i used it this week to sign something that matt needed (laughs) to use my notes app to make it happen very helpful well and you redeemed yourself so thank you very much um brad i'm going to you next because yours is in all capital letters and that obviously caught my attention obviously right uh so i have actually two animal related tweets I want to discuss. Uh, First of all, they have finally located the escaped monkeys in the Dallas Zoo. (laughs) They were missing. (laughs) Um, They are tamarin monkeys and they had been missing for a couple days, I think. It got so bad that the zoo offered a $25,000 reward for finding these monkeys. And so I don't know if that's uh, if someone cashed in on that, I hope someone did just cause you know, that's quite a bit of money and uh, it's, it's funny. <laughs> um, but Dang, we should have gone to North Texas know? as a group and, and hunted yeah. some tamarind monkeys. We could have done it at the last Texan. I will say okay, John on parks and rec, the, radio show that appears a couple of times. I think Hayden might be the only one who gets this reference. Um, oh no, Parks and Rec is not... I don't care. Are you... Yeah. Hayden, you know Parks and Rec, right? No, it's The Office. You know The Office. Dang it. Um, but there's a radio host who goes, thought for your thoughts. And so it speaks really quietly and it's hilarious. Cameron, do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, he does. Brad's tone talking about the monkeys reminded me of hmm. that character because the way Brad was speaking into the mic and kind of looking off into the distance <laughs> made me think of this Parks and Rec bit. <laughs> it really made me laugh. I hope somebody listening understands what I'm talking about. Anyway, Brad, you can okay, continue. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for interrupting me. <laughs> Cameron, thank you for laughing. I appreciate you laughing. You know, that's on mute. So people think I'm all alone. This, uh, this monkey business comes after uh, oh, <laughs> a uh, some sort of uh, exotic cat got out of the zoo, too. So uh, <laughs> it was a leopard. Remember? Leopard. Leopard. Yeah. I, hey, I said some kind of cat. Disdain. But, yeah, they said the leopard said, wasn't dangerous and I didn't believe that. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Hayden did talk about this a couple or a week or two ago. Um, the other animal related tweet that I just had to mention is that there was a, a beached whale 
that popped up and it was in on Long Island, actually. And so a humpback whale. And so it reminded me of the greatest video in the history of recorded video. In 1970, a whale <laughs> washed up on an Oregon beach and it was dead. And so what did the residents of this small Oregon town decide to do to <laughs> get rid of the, the carcass? They stuffed it full of dynamite and TNT and blew it <laughs> to smithereens. And so uh, you should definitely, there's a video of it, a, a live um, uh, recording. Uh, there's a, like a local reporter recording the explosion. And then it's just raining down with whale guts and like blubber. blubber. Yes. It is the funniest That's just thing disgusting. I've ever seen. And so, yes, I, but it's like the local newscasting again is like what's yes. cool about it because they talk so factually about yeah. it as if okay we're gonna blow this whale up here yeah. and they talk it's just amazing everything and, about you it know incredible. I, I mean they probably didn't have a lot of resources <laughs> certainly nothing to get rid of a freaking whale carcass so what would you do especially i'm sure this idea came was decided on by a few guys that were drinking at the bar just uh talking about this this whale and like, you know what you know how we should get rid of this thing let's just blow it out blow it to smithereens and you know what they that's what they did and the fact that it's from the 70s and, and grainy uh camera footage makes it even better too it's true now you're gonna have to tweet this podcast out when it's uh released with that clip i'd be happy okay. to it's a phenomenal video we all love it um okay well thank you bradley for that it truly is a delight um cameron why don't you go next yeah so i know everyone just thinks uh, today is groundhog day and they pay attention to pennsylvania does the groundhog see its shadow or not but in true texas fashion <laughs> we, we have created Armadillo Day, and we have our own predictor, and his name is BK Bob. Okay. BK Bob. And this tradition started up 10 years ago. I had no idea. I was just on Twitter, saw this pop up, thought it was hilarious. For some reason, though, I've been glued to BK Bob's Twitter. No updates. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but. It was, it's been canceled the past two years because of the weather, because of the shutdown. So this was going to be the first year in three that we were going to get a prediction from BK Bob. But I haven't seen it yet. We know the groundhog saw its shadow. So, or it didn't see its shadow. Which one was it? I have no it, idea. It's six more weeks or, uh, of winter. What does that mean? I forgot how this shadow. I had no clue. We'll have to look it up and you should tweet that if, out tomorrow. Too. If he sees his shadow, he's supposed to run back in his little burrow. And that is supposed to be six more weeks of winter. <laughs> okay. So he saw a shadow. Yeah. Then. So that's what the groundhog's saying. But here in Texas, we have our armadillo, B Cave Bob. Update us, please. Let the text know. The, uh, the, the three greatest instances of, of, pop cultureness related to groundhogs are uh, oh, um, 
Groundhog Day, the movie, of course. Then um, that's movie era. Caddyshack. And the other one is the fact that <laughs> Bill de Blasio murdered Punxsutawney Phil <laughs> by dropping him. What was it like four or five years ago? He was holding up the groundhog and dropped him and it killed the groundhog. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did not know that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay. Well, on that note, that delightful little note, Matt, we're going to come to you. What is your wrap us up with something, something good. What's your tweetery from this week? Well, I was just going to mention kind of a historical aspect, but since we're talking about animals and everything like that, I thought I would mention a, um, something else that I saw that's been rather amusing. So, uh, there are these viral short videos uh, by this girl that is just simply kind of known as the Texas Bee Lady. And uh, she has this uh, very uh, interesting, captivating voice where she um, shows this little video where she gets called out because there's some bees uh, and she collects them and, and she doesn't wear any protective gear. Uh, and, um, and during this time, she'll be like... I found the bees here and the bees were so calm and I was calm with them and I gently scooped up the bees and I put the bees into the box and then I found the queen <laughs> and it's just very, very captivating. And uh, the most hilarious thing that I saw was a video posted by actor Chris Pratt where uh, uh, he, uh, he has a big swollen eye. And he's all, so I've been watching this Texas Bee lady and her out there not wearing any protective gear. And he's like, so I saw a bee and I thought, well, bees are friendly. I'll go up and say hello to this bee, just like the Texas Bee lady sees the bee. And he's like, and this is what it got me. You know, the bee stung me right by the eye. And so it was rather hilarious. But yeah, they're, they're very hilarious videos. Uh, the historical aspect that I was going to mention, though, was the fact that today in 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hildago was signed, which designated the Rio Grande from the Gulf of Mexico as the, the southern border of the United States. And Mexico ceded 55% of its territory, including uh, what is now modern day uh, parts of New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, California, a uh, number of different states. And so it's always kind of fun to go look at a uh, little bit of uh, early American history. Well, there you go. Um, folks, we really have gotten through this podcast without as many uh, bumps in the road as I thought, except for y'all making fun of each other and me and everyone in the, in the chat. So that's delightful. Um, I did want to pivot. Cat privileges taken away after today. Probably. <laughs> 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 you made me cough. Um, our fun topic this week is really just a delight. It's this winter weather we're having. All of y'all have power, right? You guys all have power. Matt, you have power, even though you're having some trouble with your connection. I got the power. There we go. I'm I currently sitting. Power. I have I have survivor's guilt <sighs> with winter storms because I didn't lose power during the 2021 freeze, and I have not lost power once this week. I'm I'm very excited for you. That's really nice. <laughs> The resentment in your voice is palpable. <laughs> well, I think I'm then the only one still without power. Me and my husband have been like hopping around coffee shops a lot. Yesterday, we worked out of a Chili's that had, um, which was delightful. We had the best time ever. Um, and Rob actually came and joined us. And I'm podcasting now from Rod's apartment. So um, 
yeah, he's been very nice to host me. I will say he's wearing Crocs right now. Yeah. <laughs> anything to say about that, Rob? Do you have anything to add about your, your outfit choice here? They're very comfortable. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. I'm in the privacy of my own home. I'm an American and I think I can wear whatever I please. <laughs> okay, that really sounded very defensive. Yes, he did sound defensive. That's exactly right. And now he can't hear what everyone's saying and we're just going to talk about him. But Rob kindly invited me into his home because at my house, like my, my husband at my house, we cannot... Okay, why? I don't know what's happening in the chat again. But we, I could not use my hotspot to get service. Like I could not even load a web page on my computer. So we'll, we'll see how I handle um, the rest of the workday and the rest of the week. So hopefully we get power again soon. I think most folks in Austin have power... I called him okay if I if I accidentally called Rob Rod it's because I'm still are you serious you said Rod <laughs> did I say Rod Rob and now we're raking her over the coals in okay. our chat well if that's the case it was because of my sinuses it was not <laughs> I'm still I got sick earlier this week too I've had a great week <laughs> so it's just because my nose is stuffy <clears throat> and um lord in heaven brad in the chat says you called him rod you doofus um anyways thanks y'all so much appreciate this any any takeaways from your time at the freeze that was that was my highlight was one of my highlights was sitting at a chili's with my with andrew and rob just hamming it up our neighbors came we had like the whole side of one of the chili's um sections was like our people it was like me and andrew and rob and our neighbors y'all have any fun stories from the freeze at all Awesome. Not really. I mean, <laughs> there have been uh, all the all <laughs> the the freeze after um, as everything thaws out. I can just hear cracking noises outside, and I can hear things falling from trees. And I keep looking outside to see if everyone's car is okay. My car is not directly under a tree, so unless the tree completely fell over, my car will be fine. So I decided yeah. to leave it where it is. But other uh, my neighbors' cars are under the tree branches, and if one of those branches broke off, it could shatter their windshield. So I'm rooting for their cars not to be destroyed in the aftermath of this winter storm. Yeah, for sure. It's odd, like uh, running around Austin and seeing all the downed limbs everywhere. It's crazy. Cameron, what do you have to add? Well, this being my first time living in Texas, experiencing a winter storm, I got the an email yeah. to make sure. <laughs> I see big quotations. <laughs> Put air quotes around winter storm. Well, I was going to say, I got an email saying, be prepared for a boiling water warning and to fill up your tub with water. We don't get that in California. Fill your tub with water in case you need to boil water. That's a, that was something strange, something new for sure. I do think the Austin Water uh, Twitter account just put out something that said like that was not supposed to be sent out. I think that's what I just saw. So don't take me. <laughs> but they sent it out. I think was so. it from let me, Austin let me Water Cameron? This before this goes out as a podcast. <laughs> no, it's from my apartment. Oh, your apartment. Okay, okay. <laughs> Austin Water did tweet that well, there were rumors that. The city of Austin was about to shut off the water and they tweeted that that was not true and not too. There we go. There we go. Yeah. We encourage all of our customers to consider cutting back on water usage. This will help ease demand on the system while we work through intermittent power outages. 
there you go. Well, let's hope it gets better as time goes on and power comes back on. Also, Austin Energy said that uh, the fr- the Friday 6 p.m. deadline of everyone having power again is out the window now. So who knows when the rest of us will get power? I, I, I totally said that during my segment. Yes, I'm just reiterating. Okay. <laughs> you said it like it was new. Uh, I was downtown on Tuesday and the roads were totally fine. Um. But it was interesting seeing downtown with absolutely nobody there. Um, it's quite wonderful not having anybody. I suppose that's my takeaway. I've had power the whole time. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah, good for you, Brad. That's nice. Okay. Well, on that yeah, note, no. uh, Brad throwing it in my face again, I'm going to go back to my. <laughs> I certainly, certainly didn't offer you. <laughs> <laughs> you did you did everyone's been so kind and has offered us a place to stay so i'm you very know what? appreciative I, I hope your power stays out for the rest of the weekend <sighs> thank you that's every two, two can two can play at that game i wasn't even playing a, i'm so exhausted okay i'm going to hang up now this podcast <laughs> hang up this podcast what am i talking about okay i'm going to end this podcast folks I always thank you for sticking with us while we blather. I especially appreciate you sticking with us this podcast because it has been a journey. Um, We appreciate it. We will catch you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoy our show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want more of our stories, subscribe to The Texan at thetexan.news. Follow us on social media for the latest in Texas politics and send any questions for our team to our mailbag by DMing us on Twitter or shooting an email to editor at thetexan.news. We are funded entirely by readers and listeners like you. So thank you again for your support. Tune in next week for another episode of our weekly roundup. God bless you and God bless Texas. Texas.